Well, good morning. As many of you know, I recently put in my resignation for worship coordinator here at Faith Covenant Church. Um, I had gotten a new job at the school, it was getting pretty busy, and I felt like I wasn't able to uh, keep doing all of that at once. So um, about a week after I had given Pastor Nate my letter of resignation because I was too busy, he said, hey, um, how would you like to preach a sermon? Uh, I'm not sure Nate knows what the word busy means, but um, no, I was actually very, very excited to give this sermon. Um, This sermon series, we've been learning about how we grow together and how we flourish as disciples in community. And this week, we will be talking about how we grow together in our worship. And as worship coordinator, it seemed fitting that I should give this sermon. And I'm excited to give you all my thoughts on worship while I still have some official authority to speak about it. So let's talk about worship. Before we can actually grow in our worship, we need to talk about what worship is. After all, this is our Sunday worship service. Our worship team led us in worship songs. If you look at our bulletin, you'll see that the worship host leads us through our order of worship, leads us in our call to worship, and tells us which hymns we're singing out of the hymnal, which is called the Covenant Hymnal, a worship book. In fact, our church's vision statement, and I've got a slide for this, um, this is our church's vision, and it's that we are a group of believers intentionally connected, growing in our discipleship, reaching our neighbors for Christ, all centered around worship. So in order to know how we grow in our worship or even what the heck is happening during our Sunday services, we have to understand what what worship is. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to our scripture text today, Psalm 95, uh, specifically looking at verse 6. The psalmist says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. And this idea of bowing down is at the very core of what worship is. The first instance of the word worship in the Bible, at least translated into English, is in Genesis 22.5, where Abraham tells his servants, we will worship and then we will come back to you. Literally, he's saying, I'm not going to try to pronounce the the Hebrew word here, um, but it literally means bow down. We will bow down and come back to you. The act of bowing down is the act of worship. The two are inextricably linked. And here are just a few instances where we see this in the scriptures. Uh, Exodus 4.31, when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. And in the New Testament, on coming to the house, the wise men saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. And there are dozens of other examples, but this is a pretty small screen, so we can't fit them all on there. But throughout Scripture, we see that worship and bowing are linked. They cannot be separated. But this is more than just the physical act of of getting low to the ground. See, in in the ancient Near East, and for much of human history, people didn't have an egalitarian view of society. There was a hierarchy. Kings didn't shake hands like people do with the president. No, they bowed down. In the musical The King and I, the people bowed to the king of Siam. And it is a law 
that no one's head could be higher than the king, for the king was better. Now, this may seem silly and antiquated to us at the least, and a terrible abuse of power at the worst. But in the case of the Lord Almighty, maker of heaven, creator of all things, it is true. God is better. God is higher. When we bow down, we humble ourselves and say, you are above us, and we dedicate ourselves to you, our King. When we worship, we are placing ourselves in the presence of the King of heaven. When we sing worship songs or hymns of worship, we are singing songs that remind us that we are in the presence of God and we glorify. When we say our call to worship, we are saying we will together enter in to God's presence and bow down, and in our invocation prayer, we are asking for the Lord's presence to descend to us. Those who lead us in worship are taking on an enormous responsibility. And all of those who are worshiping must bow down their hearts. So now that we know what worship is, we must ask the question, why do we worship? What purpose does it serve? To answer this, I want to lean heavily on the work of Constance Cherry and her book, The Worship Architect. I'll focus on what she calls the six pillars of worship. Uh, this could be an entire sermon series unto itself. So I'm going to go through these briefly and I'll cherry pick. Thank you, thank you. A few of them instead of hitting them all. So why do we worship? First, worship centers God's act of salvation in our lives. Worship centers God's act of salvation in our lives. See, it's a way to remind ourselves of God's saving work. Constance Cherry says that in the Old Testament, this was mainly focused on the Passover and the Exodus. God's people, uh, God saving his people from bondage in Egypt. And we see this in scriptures. When the Israelites cross the Red Sea and are saved from Pharaoh's army, the first thing, the first thing they do is they sing a song of worship about what literally just happened so that future generations could sing these songs and remember that work. For Christians, we remember the salvation that came through Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. Think of the hymn, The Old Rugged Cross, or the worship song we just sang today, King of Kings. See, these songs retell the story of Christ's death and resurrection to remind us, to instill in us the awesome, unearned salvation we have through Jesus Christ. So we worship to remember God's act of salvation. Secondly, worship is our response to God's revelation. Now what this means is that through worship, God reveals things to us and we respond. God shows His glory and we sing praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. He showers us with blessings and we pray a prayer of thanksgiving. He shows us his will for this world and we bring our tithes and offerings in order to achieve that will. We worship so God may reveal himself to us and we may respond. 
And the third pillar, the last one that I'm going to talk about of the six, is that worship is a journey that transforms us. We enter into the presence of the Lord. We bow before Him, remembering the good work He has done in our lives, remembering the, uh, responding to what He reveals of Himself, and we leave worship transformed through the reading of the Word, through the songs that we sing, the prayers we pray, hopefully in some small part, the message that is preached. We leave worship different than when we arrive. We leave worship different than when we arrive. Look at Exodus chapter 34, after Moses leaves the presence of the Lord on Mount Sinai. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. It was so bright they had to put a veil over his face because of how transformed he had been. And when we worship, we are also transformed so that our lives may be more radiant after we leave. So we've looked at worship what it means to bow down, and we've looked at a few reasons why we worship, to center God's salvation in our lives, to respond to God, and to be transformed. By now, I hope you can see that worship is important, and that growing in worship is necessary for our walk as believers. So how do we actually grow in our worship? Well, I believe there are three keys that Christians can used to grow in our worship. And the first is this. We grow in our worship when we worship together. Look again at Psalm 95, verses 1 and 2. Come, let us sing, to joy, sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. The psalmist here is not saying, I will sing aloud with joy for the Lord, or I will worship and bow down. No, no, the psalmist is calling all the followers of God to come together to bow down before the Lord. And private worship has a place, yes. Spending time alone in the Word is good. Doing private devotions, it's good. But if we spend all our time worshiping alone, we are missing out on the full power of worship. Jesus himself told his disciples, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. Constance Cherry describes the importance of corporate worship this way. Corporate worship is what happens when the body of Christ assembles to hear with one heart and speak with one voice the words praises, prayers, petitions, and thanks fitting to Christian worship. One heart, one voice. This is what we do when we bow in the presence of His Spirit. And this may mean, at times, corporate worship might not be your style. How many people, show of hands, have heard of the worship wars that happened in the 90s and 2000s? Okay, quite a few, quite a few. College students, I'm going to give you a little history lesson here. Um, <laughs> what happened was, there was this new style of worship that was becoming popular in churches. 
See, some churches began moving away from traditional piano and organ and began experimenting with different kinds of instruments, different kinds of songs. Instruments like the guitar and drums. Rock instruments from the secular world began invading the church. The songs weren't the traditional style of tried and true hymns, and they really weren't that much different from the music you might hear on the radio. And churches became torn apart over this. In fact, uh, here's what one pastor wrote to a newspaper in regard to the new worship style. There are several reasons for opposing it. One, it's too new. Two, it's often worldly, even blasphemous. The new Christian music is not as pleasant as the more established style. Because there are so many songs, you can't learn them all. It, it puts too much emphasis on instrumental music rather than godly lyrics. This new music creates disturbances, making people act indecently and disorderly. The preceding generations got along fine without it. It's a money-making scene, and some of these new music upstarts are lewd and loose. Actually, that wasn't written in the 90s, it was written in 1723. <laughs> and it was an attack against Isaac Watts, writer of such hymns as When I Survey the Wondrous Cross and Joy to the World. <laughs> 200 years before that, Martin Luther was criticized for using a popular drinking song melody for the tune of A Mighty Fortress is Our God. In fact, division over worship styles can go back to at least the 700s when Gregorian chant began to add things like harmonies. Church, this is, this is funny, we can joke about this, but if we're not careful, we can let our preferences for a worship style tear us apart. In order to grow in our worship, we must agree to not let our preferences override our desire to enter in and bow down in the Lord's presence. As worship coordinator, for now, I welcome feedback. If you find a song to espouse a message contrary to the Word of God, please, please, please let me know. That should never be tolerated. But if you don't like a song, not because of content, but because of the style, I would invite you to, for the sake of our communal worship, simply try it. If you don't know the tune, reflect on the words. And as Thumper's mother said in Bambi, if you can't say something nice, don't say nothing at all. A former pastor of our church said, we sing each other's songs. Remember the purpose of worship, to remember God's acts of salvation in our lives, to respond to God as He reveals Himself to us, and to be transformed into a people who shine the light of Christ wherever we go. In the church calendar, today is the celebration of All Saints Day, where we remember those faithful who have gone on to glory. And in Revelation 7, the Apostle John is shown this vision of heaven. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. When we gather with the saints of the Lord around the throne of God, from all ages and all eras of this world, we won't be thinking about worship styles. 
No, we'll be simply worshiping God in unity as one people with one voice. The Apostle Peter tells us this in 1 Peter. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you, collectively, all of you, are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is what worship is about. One holy possession, one nation of God worshiping together. We grow in our worship when we worship together. Secondly, we grow in our worship when we worship in every season. Musical tastes can divide a church, but the wear and tear of this life can divide a soul. Our call as believers is to worship even when life has overwhelmed us. When we're in the midst of the storm and the boat is being tossed about on the waves, or even worse, if you're out of the boat and the water's over your head. It's easy to worship, to enter into God's presence when things are going well. But when things are bad, when everything in life is going against you, to find the will to worship in those times can be a Herculean feat. Consider the book of Job. Job has everything in his life, wealth and land and livestock and family, all taken away from him in a moment. I don't know if you're going to find anyone else in the Bible who had that much misfortune. And somehow, somehow, after losing everything, Job 121 says this. This is Job speaking. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. I can't imagine the strength it would take to say that after losing literally everything in my life. And if we're honest, aren't there days when we don't want to worship just because we got a bad night's sleep? I'm not trying to trivialize this. Uh, This is something that I've had to deal with very personally. Um, You see, about four years ago, Uh, my wife Cassie and I decided we were ready to have kids. And after a year and a half of trying, nothing. So we we went to the doctor to see if there was something wrong, Uh, and it turns out that there was, and that the normal way of things was probably not going to work for us. So uh, at that point, we realized we were a year and a half into what is called the journey. Um, And if there's anybody in here who has dealt with infertility, you know what that means. Everything was made more difficult by COVID. A routine outpatient procedure was delayed for months. And in the height of a pandemic, we endured four unsuccessful IUI procedures and three failed IVF transfers. Through all this, worship church was pretty hard. And it brought up feelings of loss and grief, especially around children. And in those seasons of grief and loss, you may need to find new ways of worshiping and gathering together. For us, we had our community group who prayed for us and worshiped with us. We also had choir, 
another place we could go and worship and pray. In August of this year, I actually took a sabbatical from church work because I was just feeling too worn out. And every Sunday, Cassie and I together did devotions and spent time in prayer. We took a week away, and every morning, we spent time in the Word praying. We found, and we are still finding, ways to worship despite our grief. One method that's often overlooked by the church is the practice of lament. See, the Psalms are filled with laments. Uh, One of the most famous was actually quoted by Christ on the cross when he said this from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the start to the psalm. But King David, who wrote the psalm, continued this. Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. See, David is lamenting, pleading, begging God to ease the burden that has been placed on him. God is our king. He is our Lord. He is our loving father. He is good and just. When the unfairness of life descends upon us, we can lift our voices to God, pleading for his comfort and his peace. Lament is just as worshipful as singing songs of adoration. We grow in our worship when we learn not to harden our hearts when life weighs on us, but instead to open our hearts and pour out our grief before the throne. And we can do this knowing that God will hear us. For Christ himself came down to earth to live as one of us, to know every pain that we can feel as humans, and to bear those griefs with him to the cross. He's our high priest and our sacrifice who intercedes on our behalf. As it says in Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And I don't want to just focus on when times in life are hard. Ecclesiastes tells us that there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. Turn, turn, turn. (laughs) A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. When we're in the laughing times, the dancing times, let us sing out our praises to God all the louder. Thank Him for His blessings and His provisions. The Lord is our strength. God is King and Lord of all, worthy of all our praise. We must bow down to the Lord in joy and sorrow, in times of plenty and times of need. So we grow in our worship when we worship together and when we worship in every season. And finally, we grow in our worship when we worship with our whole lives. See, worship is not something to confine to a Sunday morning between 10.30 and 11.45 or maybe 11.58 on communion Sundays. No, worship is something that we must do whenever and wherever we are. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. 
And whether we like it or not, our bodies stay with us after we leave this building on Sunday morning. And because of the Holy Spirit's power and presence, followers of Christ are always in the presence of the Lord. How does that knowledge change how you will live? What will it do for your relationships and how you treat those around you? How you spend your time? How you spend your money? Are you only willing to bow down on Sunday mornings? Or will you live every day, every moment, bowing down in the presence of the Lord? It's not easy, and you will not do it perfectly. But it is our call as believers to worship God in all things. In whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. So today we've seen that to worship is to bow down. And that worship serves multiple purposes in our lives. And to grow in worship, we must worship together in all seasons for, uh, with our whole lives. As we do this together over a lifetime, we will center on how Jesus has saved us, we'll respond to his call, and we'll be transformed into his likeness. Each week, we have a discipleship question, and this week it's this. What in my life needs to bow down to the Lord in worship? Maybe it's a relationship that you have a hard time with. Maybe it's uh, how you spend your money or your time. What needs to bow down to the Lord in worship? As I close, I want to take a moment to thank you all for the opportunity you've allowed me to uh, have serving you as worship coordinator for the last six years. It's been stressful. It's been tiring and exhausting, but it has been fulfilling and wonderful. And I look forward to continue to grow with you as a regular member of Faith Covenant as we grow together in our worship. Church, this day and every day, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture the flock under his care. Amen.